Hello listeners, welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, and with me as always is Dorothy. Hello! Unfortunately, we had to do a little bit of rescheduling for our anniversary episode. I know we promised you from beyond, but unfortunately Sean is still trapped in internetless job hellhole, and it just didn't feel right to talk about it without him. Yeah, I mean, that just would have been sad. So instead... We decided to look at something that Vry's been interested in doing for a while now, um, because I don't know if you know this, but Vry is a huge Hannibal fan. I may have mentioned it once or twice a couple places on the internet. <laughs> but I don't think we've talked about it on the show. You're right. I've shown uncharacteristic restraint. I apologize, listeners. <laughs> that was wrong of me. <laughs> it's true. Brian Fuller's Hannibal is, in fact, one of my all-time favorites. Yes. Hannibal by Brian Fuller. Yeah. Specifically, <laughs> uh, I unfortunately I have been informed that there are other properties involving Hannibal that do not involve Brian Fuller. I mean, we've already talked about, you know, sort of sideways about uh, Demi's Silence of the Lambs. That's true. Because we talked about Philadelphia. Same guy. Same director. Wild. Just mind blown. I, okay, I do I like- mean, he did get all the Oscars in the 90s. Every Yeah, he had such the magic touch that he was able to get a, a prestige horror film an Oscar. I mean, does that really count as a horror film? I know it's a serial killer film, but definitionally it feels weird calling it a horror film I mean... Me. It, Is that how it was categorized at the time? I mean, it's been rebranded since as a thriller, but I think at the time it, there was a lot of buzz around it being a horror movie that won an Oscar. Because there's that really <laughs> gory scene where he, like, eats the guard and all that, so... Yeah, but that's just wild to me because I would never in my dreams call it horror. Yeah, like it's structurally different. I mean, I, but... I, I feel like it's that, that old hobby horse of the difference. It's not horror, it's terror. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah. structurally, it's definitely not got the, the beat of a, of a horror film because, you know. it's an investigative structure. Right. We are, in, we are not running from the unknown. We are investigating the unknown, and that does not get us deeper into shit. It gets us out of it. Yeah. And it's not even that unknown because it uses the same parallel tracks that um, were later repurposed for uh, Law & Order Criminal Intent, hmm. where we, we track along with the perpetrator side by side. With the investigation, Sorry. which is a, a technique to, you know, it's a technique to heighten the audience tension because we're getting to know this monster. So uh, is what we're saying at the opening of this anniversary podcast that Silence of the Lambs is in fact a crime drama with horror elements? I wouldn't even say that, but you can say that. <laughs> you can be the person to say that. <laughs> For those of you just joining us for this episode, God, why? But also, <laughs> X is is a drama with horror elements is our least favorite thing in the world. <laughs> no, no, th- there's also just the entire concept of prestige horror. It's true. Which I do feel like we can blame Silence of the Lambs for. There are other prestigious arty horror films before that, but Silence of the Lambs winning an Oscar really kicked it into mainstream. Yeah, I specifically took it into the mainstream track as opposed to the art film track, which is where Argento lived, for example. Mm-hmm. God. We can never do an Argento film because it will just be people in the comics comments yelling at me for not appreciating him. Didn't we do that once? No. That was something else <laughs> that people yelled at us for not appreciating. We, we got yelled at for not appreciating something. I don't remember. 
Fair enough. My, my brain is full of, of theory right now. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm back in school, folks. It's true. Dorothy is becoming a smarty pants doctor. So that's how you know that this podcast is educational. Beca- I'm not becoming a smarty pants doctor. I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not even a candidate yet. I'm a student. I'm allowed to say it. No, no, it's it's like a technical thing. <laughs> I'm a jackass with a bachelor's. I don't know shit. I can say whatever I want. <laughs> it's not a thing. Yeah, so we are, while we are big fans of Silence of the Lambs, that feels a bit played. It seemed appropriate to look at something connected, but... It, it's a hard sell to look at three seasons of a prestige drama. <laughs> Which, yeah, don't get me wrong. I can talk about Hannibal. <laughs> Which does have horror elements. Hannibal is a horror series. <laughs> yes. An erotic horror series. Uh-huh. A surreal erotic horror series. Okay, if we ever do a spinoff podcast about that, you know what it should be called? Go on. That kind of party. <gasps> yes. Yes. It's <laughs> a good title. Because here's the thing, folks. I could talk about Hannibal. It's just that an hour-long podcast wouldn't be sufficient to contain all of my feelings. <laughs> so that was right out. And we decided instead that this would be a great opportunity for us to watch something that Dorothy's been a fan of for a while, but I never did get around to seeing. Which is a different adaptation of Red Dragon. 1986's Manhunter, a.k.a. the very first adaptation of Thomas Harris's novels. And you're a fan of, again, Brian Fuller's Hannibal. I sure am. Did I ever tell you about the time that I tried to read Red Dragon and made it ten pages? <laughs> oh, that's adorable. <laughs> I really we tried. We could have watched Hannibal Rising. You're right. It could have been so much worse. That's not to say we won't someday watch <laughs> Hannibal Rising, but I'm not strong enough for that yet. I have to train. <laughs> Here's the thing about Thomas Harris. We will, Graham. <laughs> uh, will Graham isn't strong enough to be Will Graham. No, that's, that's kind of his whole character arc. It's kind of his thing. It's kind of the whole thing, which does not really show up in this movie. No, not especially. This is an interesting one to talk about because we've got like six different layers of influence. I feel like Hannibal Lecter is such a cultural punchline at this point that folks who aren't specifically into one of the adaptations don't necessarily know all of the ways it's hooked its fingers into you know influencing modern genre but at the same time even people who aren't into any of the the adaptations are so completely aware of Hannibal Lecter just on a low level right if you make a Hannibal Lecter like if you reference Hannibal Lecter people will understand what you mean yeah, if you make that that's horrible. my that's my best Barty Crouch Jr. impression. Why? Why did they let him do that in a movie for children? <laughs> Exposing children to David Tennant's tongue. Don't like that phrasing. <laughs> Don't like that phrasing. This is not School of Rock. You can't pull off a joke like that. No, no, that's full on Uncle Johnny's fun corner. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Johnny's special time with the kids. Now we're just referencing daily show bits, which I'm pretty sure means we're old. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> no, and that's um, that's actually one of the interesting things about the difference of our experiences with this movie. So there's a set of people who only, who, you know, would have actually read the book when it came out. Then there's a set of people who would have seen this movie, which is called Manhunter because they decided Red Dragon sounded too much like a Kung Fu movie. True story. Bruce Lee specifically. A lot of dragon-oriented movies. 
Yeah. Then there's most people who sort of fell into the category which I am part of, which is I saw Silence of the Lambs growing up. And I was aware, I saw, you know, sort of the other films in and out here and there, read a couple of the books because they were everywhere, just blockbuster thrillers. Yeah, they're, they're very slim little airport reads, easy to pick up. Not in hardback, they're not. Huh. You get them from the library, they're hardcover. Because they became, you know, they were prestige thrillers. So they got fancy releases. Oh. And then there's Fry. <laughs> and then there's me. Who, I, I mean, I also saw Silence, you know, as a teenager. But then I, I, my next step was Brian Fuller Hannibal because Clea Linda had spoken so highly of it. And she was a, a internet blogger who had a huge influence on me as a teenager. As opposed to a telegraph blogger. Uh-huh. <laughs> In the old style. A clogger, we used to call him. Listen, the kids today, the kids today could have been talking about the YouTubes. The vlogs? I don't know. <laughs> but it was not the kind of show I would have normally picked up because the the first season was the only one out at the time and it looked like procedural and boy do I have procedural burnout. See, I don't mind procedurals, but... So I watched Manhunter after watching a lot of the movies. And, you know, then I saw Manhunter. I liked it alright. I thought it was interesting. Um, Hannibal was a real hard sell for me. Because I was expecting a procedural, like a fairly traditional one, and I was expecting it to be sort of within the realm of possibility to be a prequel to Silence of the Lambs, the Demi version. <laughs> so I was really fucking disoriented when watching the first couple episodes, because it's not. <laughs> it's not in that universe. It's super not. It is not a grounded show. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful fanfic. <laughs> I was trying to figure out when it's set because I was trying to do my math and be like, shouldn't this be around 85? Lol, no. <laughs> and then cell phones happened. <laughs> Again, I lived in Maryland, so I'm figuring travel times for these motherfuckers. Not accounting for the fact that Hannibal is a murder wizard. We can't just do Cleolinda's bits. You're right. That was wrong of me. But it's such a good phrase. <laughs> it is. Because, he, because in that show, he can just go wherever he wants to kill. It's true. He can pop up to, he, he can pop down a few states to, to dress up a corpse for the, for the FBI to find and then be up in his office the next day. Hey, I mean, the FBI reciprocates. They're nice that way. <laughs> this show is fucking wild. But that's what makes this movie even weirder is that Hannibal Lecter's in it. Technically. Barely. The character of Hannibal Lecter is in this movie with the character of Will Graham, and it carries absolutely none of the cultural significance that these characters would later go on to have. It's even weirder than when people in a Dracula movie don't know that it's Dracula. Mm-hmm. And apparently the director was, like, there, there was a case of I'm exercising restraint. He did want to include more Hannibal, but it's like, you know, it's better to leave him wanting more. Yeah. But it the is- The director, Michael Mann. Yeah. Tell the children about Michael Mann. Okay. So, um, the first Michael Mann stuff that I remember seeing, he, he did a bunch of, um, thrillers and action movies and stuff. He did Heat. Um, he was real big in the 80s and 90s. His probably biggest 
um, splash on the entertainment industry was just the fact that he's responsible for Miami Vice. Just the whole show, which really changed a lot of the conventions around people's expectations of what TV's supposed to look like. Because of the Florida aesthetic, or? Just the whole aesthetic. It was just very high gloss, um, extremely high production values. The male leads went through, like, 12 costume changes an episode on average. Hmm. The slug for it, like, Star Trek's slug to pitch it to the studios was a wagon train, but in space. Or wagon train to the stars. Wagon train was was a cowboy show. The pitch for Miami Vice was, um, the MTV of cop shows. Oh. Because they wanted to import a music video aesthetic, which made licensing an absolute hell. Because when they imported a music video aesthetic, they also imported music. And if you're familiar with any of the Daria DVD rights issues, for example. Yeah, where the, uh, it took forever. for home viewing just weren't a thing. Nobody knew that people would ever want that vhs tapes were expensive vhs players were expensive and you know if you weren't watching the show or taping it yourself why would you go out and buy it it's sort of a precursor to the uh fly me to the moon issue with the netflix's release of evangelion where licensing that song apparently cost more than getting the entire rest of the show yeah and this is one of those things where there are shows that have dealt with it the way Miami Vice eventually did and the way Daria did by just dubbing in sort of placeholder music mm-hmm. and fans have strong opinions about Boy, the sure correct do. music. Um, it's a big thing. But then there are other shows that just can never be released like because your- it's too inextricably linked. Like there was a show called Cold Case that I used to really like. And part of the gimmick was that um, the crimes were shown as Lily, the lead investigator, um, investigated and discovered them. But all the flashbacks were really keyed in to the um, the sound and the aesthetic of the time they're set in. So there was just tons of fucking amazing music. And they can't redub all of it. It would be just... A major hassle compared to the number of people who are yearning to own cold case files. No, no, cold case files is different. Excuse me. Cold case files is the true crime one. Right. Cold case was was the fictional cop drama. That's confusing. um, Michael Mann also got his start pretty early on by writing a couple episodes of Starsky and Hutch. Hey. So he came up through sort of that school of cop show. Okay, but... Of two guys who have... An intense relationship. Shall we call it? Is Miami Vice as gay as Starsky and Hutch? I, di- I couldn't really get into it. It didn't appeal to me, but but it has a similar f- fan following. Gotcha. Okay, but do you want to know what's wild? What's that? Uh, the cinematographer for this movie, uh, Dante Spinotti. Mm-hmm. Also the cinematographer for the Red Dragon remake. That is wild. They look nothing alike. Right? He... he- he did this and its own remake. Uh-huh. Wild. Because Red Dragon looks much more like Silence. Yeah. Well, Silence, but sort of leaning towards the aesthetic that would eventually develop into the Hannibal TV show. There's a lot of rich golds mm. and reds. Wasn't that big in Hannibal, the film? I think so. Because Italy and... I think so. I-, I think I remember Hannibal, the film, having sort of a couple of distinct color palettes. 
put a pin in that if we ever come back to that movie. Yeah. This movie was um, ext- considered extremely arty at the time it came out. It doesn't feel arty now. So yeah, much. it feels very, not perfunctory, but stripped down in a way. But um, man's stylistic flourishes are really here in that he, um, he uses a lot of uh, intense color palette stuff to convey moods. Um, mm-hmm. It was considered very, very modern and unusual looking. Yeah, and that the uh, he he's got that big set piece that he added in with in Agata de Vida, which yeah. was based on a real serial killer who was who had a crush on this woman who basically they didn't know each other at all, but he was convinced that that was their song. Right, because he was a stalker. Uh huh. The word is stalker. Thank you. I know how words. <laughs> And that's funny, too, because um, the shapeshifter episode in season one of Supernatural is blatantly copying that shit. Just blatantly ripping it off. I was still watching Supernatural. Well, it was season one, so. It's okay. So I was watching Supernatural. They didn't even have to, you know, bait me in by including Crowley. No, but that certainly kept you watching for much longer than you should have. It did. Mark Shepard was good. He certainly was blatantly playing Crowley. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's his name. That's the character's name. You're right. I don't know what I was talking about. All but this to say. <laughs> that man's adaptation is extremely influential, first and foremost, in the field of how crime dramas were written. Uh, you can basically trace a straight line from this to CSI. Yes, you can. Why is that? Because the the lead, Will Graham, is played by William Peterson from CSI. That's, I can't, that is, that, <laughs> I don't think that's a better casting gag than, than casting Sergeant Howie in Hot Fuzz, but it's up there. <laughs> it's not a casting gag, he just landed the role, it's wild. But this movie, um does feel prototypical of CSI because it does the same thing that Silence of the Lambs and um, a lot of Patricia Cornwell's books mm. were doing at the time, which was focusing intently on all of these new forensic techniques that are available. Right, whereas you, at the time, it was a lot more, you know, if you weren't doing cop on the edge, revenge type stuff, it, it, a lot of your procedurals were way more on the... the Columbo. You know, Right, being on the beat. Yeah, and and very cleverly coming to your conclusions about people's behaviors and inconsistencies of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't I don't know if Will was the first profiler type character, but he he certainly pioneered, which is he certainly pioneered the haunted profiler who you know is is carrying his work around with him. Peterson does not convey that at all. No, and that's the thing. These characters, you get a very different read on the characters in this adaptation because it's the first time they've done these characters, so they don't have the the weight of repetition that comes from later adaptations. Mm-hmm. Versus, like uh, even Ed Norton's. Yeah, it feels fresh in a way that's very odd. Dennis Farina as Jack Crawford, very good. Why does no? I like him. No, he looks raw. He's not. I'm I know, sorry. but I like him. He would later go on. To Law and Order. What? <laughs> Why is this movie such a linchpin? This movie- Just Everybody was in stuff after it. That, by the way, 
tanked real hard. Oh, yeah. No, it was not well liked. It was considered arty and stylish, but it was not well liked. Okay, but I'm talking like 15 million budget and some discrepancy in the no- the numbers between like some papers from the 80s and box office mojo's numbers between 4 and 8 million on the take. Yep. That's rough. And they let man keep making movies. Like a lot of them. He did Mostly not Mostly super successful. He did not get run out of Hollywood after le- making back less than half of his budget. We run across that a lot. Movies that tanked but ended up being super influential. I mean, that's the definition of a cult film. Hey, I discovered something about us today. (laughs) So I guess we should talk about the plot. I think anyone who is listening to this probably knows it in broad strokes, but let's let's refresh people's memories. Yeah, well, and especially because the plot is conveyed differently here Mm -hmm. than I feel like people would convey it, you know, tomorrow or conveyed it to how many years ago is it? Four, five Uh, It's been three years since it ended, I think. Yeah, so three years ago, um, or, you know, ten years ago. Almost 20 now. Oh, gosh. You're right. It was 2001, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Uh Uh-huh. Hadn't America suffered enough? (laughs) Anthony Hopkins needed a paycheck. Anthony Hopkins needed a chance to nap in the makeup chair, which is his favorite part of his day, according to interviews. You know what? I I respect that for that. (laughs) As far as I know, he's never shit on a child for liking his character. Unlike Sir Alec Guinness. So we cool with (laughs) Anthony Hopkins for the moment. (laughs) He has not revealed himself to be a human monster to our knowledge. As far as I'm aware. (laughs) All right. So for those of you who uh, it's been a minute or you are only familiar with Hannibal Lecter, through Silence of the Lambs, which actually I think is more common than not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the pop culture version of the character. Like, the perfect one. Mm -hmm. A lot of the sequels with Anthony Hopkins are real bad, Mm -hmm. so. Well, I mean, Silence follows the same prescription as this movie, which is, you know, however much you remember that movie for him, he's only got like 15 minutes of screen time. An appropriate quantity, frankly. Yeah. Any more than that, and it gets weird. Real weird. Real fast. Horny. It's okay to say horny. And if you can't get weird enough with it. (laughs) Either you go all in, (laughs) you shoot for straight. All right, so this is the story of profiler Will Graham, who's walked away from his job. He lives with his wife and kid, and they have a lovely beachside home. Right, I want to know where they're getting the fucking money for this shit. It was the 80s. Wasn't (laughs) Wasn't there a boom on if you were white? I don't know. But it's the 80s, and Will is down with the ladies lol <laughs> very specifically uh-huh will graham fucks he does he has a biological child that is his yep but he his... has bred <laughs> now stop me if you've heard this one before his old boss comes to him jack... just to have a chat uh-huh jack crawford and they were <laughs> friends from way back and he says allegedly look, <laughs> allegedly <laughs> look i've got this case and i just want you to take a look at it Check out these fucked up pictures, man. That's all I wanted to do. I, I didn't... I, I just I, wanted to freak you out. I didn't expect you any, you to do anything about this, he says. Like a liar. <laughs> so, this is now Will Graham's one last job. And his wife tries to tell him not to go because it's going to suck you back down and you know how all this messed you up before. So his bastard friend has just brought him this unsolvable case. <laughs> 
Mm -hmm. Because Will's whole thing is that he gets into the minds of the killer, and that's how he is able to catch all of these horrible, vicious serial killers. But it's getting to him. Looking at all these horrible crime photos and thinking these horrible thoughts. Corrodes the mind. Yep. You know, Nietzsche. Etc. Stare not. Mm -hmm. Staring. But he can't just walk away from this because there's this guy who's been killing people on the full moons. Yep, killing whole families. Sticking glass in unmentionable places. Eyes. It's eyes. Oh, we should trigger warnings. Oh, yeah, uh, this movie is not... It's, I mean, it's a serial killer movie, so yeah. probably people are mostly aware. Shit with... Was it only eyes in this version? I think they do not mention other places, yes. Gotcha. I believe. Yeah. In other versions, it's gr- mm, gets more gruesome. Yeah. Um, so, murder, sexual obsession. Implications of sexual assault. Just burning in- alive. In a well, way that's glorious. Yes. Um, a lot of gore that's not, I don't know, the, this movie nowadays isn't very disturbing if you're familiar with more modern stuff, but it's still a serial killer movie. Yeah. Um, deliberate stalking and, mm-hmm. you know. I don't, I don't think we can make a judgment call on how ableist the depiction of Reba is. Yeah. But, uh, there, there is a blind character who is kind of there to be a damsel. Yeah. And given that it's Harris, the writing's not great around the female characters in general. It's true. And there's a lot of deviant queerness because it's Harris. Yeah. Because that's kind of central to his versions of all of this. Mm-hmm. I think that's the main ones. I think so. I can't. No uh, animal stalking. Yeah. No, no, there's there is a mention of animal death and cruelty to animals, but it's not on screen. It's not on screen. And it's it, it is generally a film that's pretty good at being unsettling. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Noonan's performance. I love Noonan actually. He's he's actually my favorite version of Dollarhide. Hmm. Because, um, well, other versions of Dollarhide, he's been played by Ray Fiennes in Red Dragon and hmm. by um, what's his name, Thorin, the from The Hobbit, the handsome man. Yeah, the guy from North and South. Mm-hmm. The, it's gonna bother me if I don't Google it right now. Please do, please do. Yeah, the Richard TV. Armitage. Yes, who is just built. Yeah, and and I mean, Ray Fiennes was built as hell, too, because the character was written as a very physically powerful, imposing individual. Right, because transformation theme, what have you. Yeah. But. But I really prefer Noonan's performance because the, the character's motivations are sort of centered on his feelings of inadequacy. And... In the other adaptations, they've leaned in hard to to convey that his inadequacy is an irrational feeling, that there's no reason for him to feel inadequate because he's the, these big, you know, strong, hands, traditionally handsome cis men. Right, with like a cleft palate and that's it. Well, I mean, it, it's it's the equivalent of Eric, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, they do. The they sunburn. Have, they have microwave burns on their lip. Right. Uh, It's just like your least favorite version of Phantom. That's not my least favorite version, but (laughs) no, you're right. It's a bad one. (laughs) Right. Where, where like, okay, 
I guess, but, like, your your physicality of this actor is not informing. Or, like, Zuko. Right. I haven't seen any of these things I'm referencing. <laughs> no, but you are correct. In this, he's still big, he's still strong, and he's still within, you know, sort of an average range of attractiveness. He has thinning hair. He's and... not, like, a monster externally. Mm-hmm. But he, he looks somewhat average, and you in the face and and he's very sort of soft in his physical performance and i feel that it conveys um the idea of a person who would feel inadequate and would also be overlooked socially to the point where he would have enough isolation to arrive at these behaviors yeah there's a lot of a lot of the behind the stuff scene stuff that's out there kind of talks about how he shaped his performance and like he started out looking into serial killer letters and stuff and like backed away from that because like you don't want that you don't want that and so he ended up trying to go for this performance that's like he wants very passive god well no like he framed his his in terms (laughs) of uh, (laughs) of like you know believing he was doing a help a good to these people. Right, and transforming them. And... Right, which they went for, they kind of piggybacked off of when, when in Arbitage's performance, but... Yeah. I, I, I think, however he went about it, it ended up in this kind of believable, upsetting patheticness, where, like, you really, they really believe it, yeah. and you're gonna be real dead but also like it turns on a dime in a very realistically (laughs) scary way and i like noonan i'm always excited when i see him pop up in something i used to watch the blacklist for a season or two it got real bad much like supernatural (laughs) we've all made mistakes i've made many tv mistakes but but he was in the episode uh called the stew maker where he played this mild-mannered dentist who just, as a side job, liquefies p- people. Oh. Well, that's upsetting. Uh-huh. He was real good in it. Rock on. And it was very exciting for me to see him because I was like, oh my god, it's Dollarhide. <laughs> it's that guy. Also, kudos to him for being like, I don't want to see or talk to Will Graham until the big the window scene yeah which is pretty cool that's just as a method decision without mm-hmm. being one of those assholes who uses method as an excuse to be an asshole to people francis dollar hyde aka uh who first to himself as the red dragon who is known in the press as the tooth fairy has been killing whole families and desecrating the bodies and they he does this once every full moon so they've got a 28 day ticking clock to find him before he strikes again he is not a werewolf. And meanwhile, so all of this is complicated by the fact that they're trying to get ahead of him before he picks his next victim. Will but, is looking at all of these old documents, but he's out of the he's been out of the game so long, he needs to get the feeling back. Right. And meanwhile, there are we mentioned the press calling him the tooth fairy. There are dirtbag reporters around every corner. I really like this version of Freddie Lowndes. I prefer this version of Freddie Lowndes. Yeah. Freddie Lowndes um, is the dirtbag reporter character. He was played by Philip Seymour Hoffman in Red Dragon. And... Laura Jean Korostecki. In, uh, in in TV Hannibal. Yeah. It's not Laura Jean Korostecki's fault. 
No. That I, that I hate what they did with her character. And and I'll maintain that she has charisma and I like what they do with her in later seasons, but I completely understand your principled objection. Yeah, it just, I really hate that upon deciding to make this character into a female character who's a reporter, they immediately leaned into all female reporters fuck their sources. Like, that's the only way they could think of to convey that she's an unprincipled asshole of a reporter. Which is... I don't think you've ever talked about this on the podcast, but, like, I think it's a good thing to tell people about. Oh, yeah, this is a real problem um, in actual real-life meat-space journalism. Because the female reporter who fucks for stories is just such a ground-in trope, women who work as journalists experience really high rates of um, of sexual harassment and assault on the job because... A lot of times people who might be sources perceive there to be an expectation of payment in the form of sex. Which is super fucked up. And it also contributes to the fact that um, women who work as journalists are also perceived as not actually having any journalistic chops or legwork because... The perception is that obviously they're not actually doing the work, they're just trading sex. So it's sort of an industry-wide endemic problem, and I just really don't respect films that con- films and TV shows that continue to... Uh, it is at this point such a poisonous trope that there is no way to include it ethically, even in like your grim, dark, edgy, tongue-in-cheek, whatever. Yeah. Well, and especially because... Again, this character was already a slimy dirtbag. Right. So just use the excuse of of flipping the gender to, and then included this. But you could have made the character just as unethical mm-hmm. without that. Right. and, and Because Freddie Lowndes is already unethical. Mm-hmm. Freddie Lowndes is played by the inseminator from... Uh, Don't Breathe. Yeah. By the way. That film, if by the way. If you want to talk about uh, insensitive depictions of blind people... Fucking A, that movie. I thought it would be a, a silly good fun time. It was super not. No. I thought we were just going to watch a bunch of teenagers get murdered. But nope. It involves imprisoning a woman to try to inseminate her against her will. So that's upsetting. But he has this red curly hair on the top of his head and... 110% was the physical inspiration for, for how they styled Freddy in the TV series. Oh yeah, because she's got this great red mane of hair. Which is not how the actor looks normally. She's got like dark hair. Yeah. And I mean, again, I can't blame Cora Stecky for the writing around her character, but there's a reason this is my favorite version of Freddy. No, completely understandable. You don't feel at all sorry for him. Not even a little bit. <laughs> not even a bit. And it's amazing. He's awful. Uh-huh. Yeah, so they he at first makes it harder for them because he's, you know, going around digging into things and painting Will as like this this damaged, unstable guy that they've pulled in. Which like is he wrong? Fair. No. <laughs> not not that Peterson's bothering to convey that. No. Yeah, um so I I, I tried really hard to cele- to separate you know, my knowledge of the TV series from this movie as we were watching, because that's not fair to this movie. And I did right, it. because this was 30 years, uh-huh. almost. 25 years. And I did enjoy this. I had a good time. But with, with Peterson's take on Will Graham, it was really hard to to not 
see all the ways he failed to live up to Hugh Dancy's Wilgram, <laughs> as he is known, as he must always be called. <laughs> because Dancy is so good at getting into that idea of, this is a guy who is constantly teetering on the edge of just falling off that cliff. I feel sorry for Edward Norton, because like he was fine. He's- he was fine, but he's he's like lukewarm between these two extremes Mm -hmm. yeah peterson's take on will is basically he's 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 basically a normal guy yeah like he doesn't like that he he's i guess in some ways you could say it's more realistic in that he's this kind of normal guy who who's just you know sick from having to do this for so long but mostly that just expresses itself in him having little masculine um coded rage fits Mm mm-hmm I feel like there's a real reluctance with this adaptation to explore vulnerability Mm -hmm. in men. Yeah, it's very, I I mean, I think it is. Because any vulnerability in men in this is deviant. Right. And it even shies away from it in its villains. And I mean, it is coming off the back of those cop on the edge movies, but also it doesn't, you know, it's not necessarily trying to be those in other ways. So it, 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 it does feel like a weird gap. Yeah. And like, I feel like, Will, the basically normal guy who who is upset by his line of work, doesn't fit with the lines of dialogue where he's supposed to be, like, upsetting himself by how easily these things come out of his mouth. Which, I'm not a criminal profiler, but I'm a writer, and I've had that happen, where you just slip a gear and you just achieve a level of understanding of something that you just really did not want to mm-hmm. to be that accurate about. And now you're upset about it. Yeah, now you're upset at yourself. And I feel like for managing to achieve that and and that that metacognition level where mm-hmm. you've achieved this understanding of something but you're not in empathy with it, but mm-hmm. and like so much of what works about Hannibal the TV series is that that's basically the entire basis of the, of the story is is its Will's fall from grace as tempted by Hannibal Satan. Yep. And a lot of that rests on how well Dancy performs. The fact that those undercurrents are there from the minute he shows up on screen even when the show is ostensibly a, a normal procedural. Yeah. Well, and a lot of it also goes to the uh, the amount of chemistry that exists mm. between the two leads. I mean, he and Mickelson play this this sort of back and forth very strongly Mm -hmm. and even foster and hopkins have a lot more of this give and take going on in silence of the lambs even as you never believe that clarice would ever yeah fall that way yeah there's this kind of underlying thing with hannibal that you have to address in some way or other where where it's a flirtation with death because this is someone who can drive people to death Mm-hmm. But also, isn't it a little bit alluring? Yeah. Isn't he charming? Okay, but I walked along a bridge today, and it it had metal sides because it was a, over a railroad, mm-hmm. and there were signs on the metal sides of the bridge that said, you know, danger, high voltage, do not touch, risk of electrocution. How were those intrusive thoughts, huh? Oh, oh, they were present. They were very present. Yeah, I feel like there is, like, Hannibal is like the Hannibal is an intrusive thought. <laughs> Uh huh. Given form and an accent. Yeah, and in this, he's played by Brian Cox, who is sometimes American and sometimes Scottish. I don't know what direction he was given. 
I'm not going to blame Cox, frankly. He's no. clearly trying. It's not a bad performance. It's just, no. it, it isn't as... He in- later went on to keep people locked up in cages in the Wolverine movies. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. And also uh, the, the Bourne movies, where he's playing basically the same character. And also to just take a second bite at the Hannibal apple in Good Omens, <laughs> in the wrong place. Brian Cox was... Yeah, he yeah. plays Death. Oh, right, 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 right. His face wasn't there. Right. He was just too happy to be there, uh-huh. which I understand. Totally I would be very happy to be there, but he just didn't have the tone I wanted. Yeah. Which, which makes sense because the tone I wanted is dead. Yep. It's okay. We still have Hogfather. <laughs> but yeah, you remarked on it while you we were watching that there is just no chemistry at all between Cox and Peterson. It's very strange. It's especially bad because some of the scenes that they ostensibly share are over the phone, mm-hmm. where it's even more vital for the actors to convey some sense of connection. And it's like Cox is really trying to to achieve that level of interaction, which is already difficult when playing a caged Hannibal, because then you have to, you're, you're talking through a wall. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you watch the Demi version, you, you see how Hopkins managed that in whatever, 14 minutes. With Foster, because Foster was leaning back in, right? Like the the cutting of that. There's so many, uh, so much of that film that's just two shots, and yet it really creates this intimacy. Yeah, and I feel like Cox is really reaching for that, but he's just coming up on a wall. Yeah, he is trying. There's there's this almost playful flirtation that crops up in his other scenes, like the phone scenes. Yeah, where he's trying to get hold of the red dragon and like provoking that whole mess for the lulls for the lulls which is why he does anything you know he gets he even gets to deliver the lines about the churches uh-huh which is a great line oh yeah and the reason it makes its way into every version because it's good but peterson is not and like i don't mean nothing in terms of like, like you peterson's know, he, not not acting he right. is acting but he's not he's also not d- deliberately not engaging you know, the character isn't shutting down this this implication. It's just that it's it's as though Peterson has decided not to pick up on it. Yeah. He's not disgusted. He's not weirdly entranced. He's, it's just... It, it, he's not even drawn to even just the violent aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of key if you're telling a story about a character who who is on the edge of violence. Mm-hmm. So when they have Cox giving the, we're, you know, we're, we're alike, you and I type lines, it just, it's like, nah, you're really not, (laughs) not even a little, and it feels weird. And I know I said that I liked this version of Dollarhide because he's kind of weirdly pathetic and, and the futility really comes through. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I don't like this version of Hannibal for that reason. And again, that's not Cox's fault. It's the atmosphere. Right. Well, but... uh, it's almost like Hannibal has become this mythic cultural figure. You know, Mickelson literally played him as Satan. Yeah. And Hopkins was able to go back and get paychecks off that, off whatever piece of shit they, they decided to put Hannibal in for a couple decades. Just because people want to watch him. I mean, Hopkins did movies that were, that were label filed off Hannibal movies, like Hannibal with gorillas and shit. Ah, Yes. Gorilla Hannibal. I think that one was called Instinct. And then there was also, what was it? Fracture? I think so. And then there was the one where it's just Hannibal, but in the woods. (laughs) Because 
Okay, Mr. Hopkins. Because it paid. Because, like, the idea of this very mannered violence resonated with people. Mm -hmm. Possibly partly because, you know, it's Anthony Hopkins and he's so British. And the idea of violence under British courtesy is a very loaded cultural object but Mm -hmm. Nicholson moved it away from that yeah well and there's that difference too like you know it's not just that Clarice is the kind of principled character who's never going to go with Hannibal because she's not you know scarred in the way that Will is but it's also as though Hannibal in that universe has come in from like another dimension he is this this implacable force that everyone will face but the world is grounded Whereas Hannibal the TV is a dream from yeah. start to finish. Yeah, yeah, fever dream. It's it's a hallucinatory experience of losing yourself. Mm-hmm. Which which is why you know, as fucked up as that relationship is, it's a really compelling love story. Well, because it's less Will falling in love with Hannibal than falling in love with himself. Mm. I would say, but that's not happening here. No, there's ju- it's <laughs> just weird. And There's I, maybe five minutes of Hannibal in this, and he almost feels perfunctory. Uh, you have to have Hannibal because... But he, <laughs> you have to have Hannibal because of plot, not even because he's Hannibal, because he's not Hannibal yet. Uh-huh. You just, you need him to get the plot moving, and you need him to contact Dollarhide and, like... And create a crisis. Mm-hmm. Which falls to nothing in this, because they cut off the end of the film. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a choice. Uh-huh. Continuing with plot. Yes, continuing with the plot. So after he goes to visit Hannibal to get, you know, it all back, and Hannibal presumably contacts Dollarhide because he feels, you know, his pride Slighted. is wounded. Mm-hmm. And he gives... He Scorned, sent, even. <laughs> if you will. If you will? My. Not in this version. <laughs> but... So he he get, manages to get hold of Will's address and sends it to Dollarhide, and meanwhile Dollarhide has extracted revenge by kidnapping Freddie Lowndes for writing you know this piece about how he's he's deranged and oh, he's, he's a sexual pervert, which is clearly untrue. How <laughs> shocking! Apparently, they filmed that scene with with a dragon decal on mm-hmm. him, and then just refilmed it again with the shirt on because they didn't like how it looked. That seems like the good cho- like a good choice. Yeah, but but it makes the death scene um, a little bit uh, disappointing because apparently the blood spray was originally intended to mimic right. the shape. And I would have liked to see that. Yeah, it does kind of, the oomph is sort of lost yeah. on that particular take on it. And you can so see the roots of all of Harris's shit. All of Harris's serial killers who aren't Hannibal Lecter are pretzels. They are the same. <laughs> they are. <laughs> Yeah, so we mentioned at, uh, up top in the content warnings the the villainous queerness stuff, and anyone who's watched Silence of the Lambs will remember the famous wishy-washy bullshit with Buffalo Bill, where they've made a scary trans person using the man in dress trope. But we're totally and saying- that scene. Uh-huh. Just the wild horses scene. Yep. But there's a bit- earlier on where where we have a pro where we have a psychologist say no 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 this guy is definitely different from real actual authentic trans people right and and you know jody gets that line about how real trans people are never violent which i feel like stonewall i'm gonna give it the you tried star Uh, no it gets a you tried star but also (laughs) but also we will throw a brick (laughs) 
we've been known. But and and like I almost feel like he does that because he realized he fucked up with Dollar Hide. <laughs> Even though Dollar Hide is straight. Yeah, but He's so straight. Extremely. All of his extremely Freudian neuroses are centered around fears of not actualizing and and not achieving with women mm-hmm. Be- because of his abusive grandma blah 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 which is not in this but <laughs> but yeah no you're right it but is it, but it's all like oedipal conflicts and mm-hmm. extremely hetero oriented violence mm-hmm. like he only kills men because and children because they're obstacles to his achievement of this family unit fantasy with women and yet at the same time the film Cox finally gets to put out some of that intimacy that he's not getting from Peterson in just this very surprisingly tender directed uh the in the in the letter he writes to uh to the red dragon. Yeah. Like it's it's an odd place to put that emotional beat. Yeah, just to can it up there. Uh-huh. So it ends up with these supremely weird vibes. Not as weird as when Peterson's watching the video though. Like, the one scene where I feel like Peterson actually hooked into the character. Mm-hmm. Right, where he's... And then what? Then what did you do? Oh, shit. <laughs> you watched her, didn't you? And, listeners, you can't see, his... but there's something happening with his arm. Uh-huh. The camera is centered on, like, his upper body, and there's something going on with his hand and his arm. Uh-huh. As he, like, mouth-breathes his way through this narration, which they totally fucking copped for mm-hmm. Hannibal. Yep. <laughs> I was very sad that he, he at no point said, this is his design. Very but, like, like, this one scene, he suddenly manages to actually hook into the idea that achieving this deep empathy with, with sickness gives him a boner. Yep. Like, he is clearly just on the edge of masturbating to murder scenes. And and that has, like, that moment of, oh, fuck. And then he goes and fucks his wife, so it's fine. That's not... Hmm. His poor That's wife... choice. Or his poor wife, who only exists in a blue room with no clothing. <laughs> she doesn't have clothes. That's how they afforded their beach house. Oh, with him not working at all. She sold all her clothes. Uh-huh. So she, even when her child wanders into the room, she just has to languish in bed with a sheet. It's very sad for her. It's really funny. She, she like It's clearly some sort of cost-cutting measure where they just shot every scene with this actress except one on the same set the same day where she's just wearing a tank top and has a sheet wrapped around her. Mm-hmm. But, like... <laughs> I do... I think the film kind of... Int- accidentally lucked into some parallelism there. You know, like, I don't know that it was thinking about it this deep because, you know, the woman and family as a prize is just some severely 80s shit, but there is an interesting parallel in there between, like, Will's goal of his family and Dollar Hyde's, like, mirror murder fantasies. Well, and and I think it might be deliberate because it's simplistic, but it is there in that they both define themselves through the perceptions of their families. Mm. So Will really becomes uncomfortable with what he does when he realizes that his son's perceptions of him are shifting. Okay, that's... So the gaze of, of the family upon him is how he's defining himself. Which is, by the way, I think Peterson's best acted scene in the film. Right, the, the, the supermarket scene. Mm-hmm. Where his family uh, is 
threatened, it comes to nothing, but they find out that Hannibal has given Dollarhide the address, so they move his family into hiding. So we're gonna have to fucking sell the house. Yep. Because this is going to happen again, is my takeaway here. Yep. They just go back to the beach house at the end, like, ain't nothing gonna happen. Like, Hannibal is gonna give your address to every serial killer. All of them. Uh huh. Every last one. That house is He's gone now. Set just up blow a it up. profile on serial killer Tinder for you. <laughs> my, my dear grandson <laughs> never locks his door. Here's his address. Boy, I hope nobody breaks in. Okay, you say that, but there was an actual website. Oh, God. That's upsetting. I did yeah. not know that. I apologize. Like, not for serial killers, but for people who would, like, post on social media when they were going on vacation, and then those <laughs> oh, posts so would the... get farmed and and sent to a, a, a database for... Okay, but that's a really good way to uh, set up an insurance scam. Yes, I suppose that is one way to react to that information that I've given you. I've told you that my dad wanted to be a con artist and didn't have the guts. <laughs> that's why he's a magician. Six of one. Same thing. Just one of them, you get your arms broke. Like, they're gonna need to fucking move. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, so meanwhile, he gets he goes to check on his family, and his kid doesn't want to leave his alone. mom alone. <laughs> because he's been reading Freddie Lowndes, the scummy reporter's stories Pro- about how unhinged Will Graham is. Which he's not in this version, but... He really isn't. Like, it's so weird how every attempt to paint him as, oh man, this is getting to you, you could turn any day, comes off as just blatant lies. Yeah, well, it's also odd because this is his biological son, so they have to do some weird dancing around. So you remember when this happened. Mm-hmm. When it's clearly new information to the character of the child. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if it had been as it is in every other version... Uh, his stepson. stepson you could just be like and these are things that happened before we met but even still, and i understand why it would make you uncomfortable that i'm around your mother now mm-hmm. even still peterson sells it like it's a really good scene yeah again it's like the one scene where i feel like he taps into something really human about the character mm-hmm. and his connection and chemistry with the kid is really good yeah and it's it's filmed in just like this really mundane quiet way there's all sorts of 80s brands yeah it's just in in the cereal and coffee aisle of a of a store which feels very real because those conversations frequently don't happen when you sit down to have a very special talk yeah a lot of the time stuff like that you know any kind of serious conversation will start just wherever it's relevant Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like the movie grasped that somehow. Shit. Probably intended as like ironizing this, this happy, shiny corporate America, but it works. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, Freddy <laughs> has been captured by the Red Dragon and, you know, made to take down a statement about how he lied. And was a naughty, naughty boy. And then. And then the best kill in movie history. <laughs> so good. <laughs> a lot of people like the, uh,. <laughs> The Hoffman version of this death, but I I like this one. <laughs> it's funny. Where we cut to a parking garage. No, well, first, first that deviant queerness re- rears its head again. It sure does. He puts in on a kiss of death with the scary teeth that don't work in this version because we've erased most of the dragon imagery. Yeah, and you can't actually even tell that he uses right a, a bridge. 
well, so like it, it, it's not visible but he puts on scary teeth and and bites out Lounge's upper tongue, lip upper lip it's unclear mm-hmm. it's, it's they yeah. ain't got the budget for that yeah nope it's just a big long sloppy scary kiss and and he has Lounge tied to a wheelchair which is not explained in this version but it belonged to his grandma yep and then we cut to a parking garage and it's and the parking garage attendant is sitting there sort of like reading his paper looking around like boy i sure hope nothing horrifying happens in here tonight to me boy i hope this is gonna be just a normal night <laughs> unfortunately for him a flaming wheelchair goes dashing by that deviant queerness Boo. <laughs> just an on-fire wheelchair with a person in it. <laughs> it's just zoom right through the, fl- through the frame. And it's so good. It's hilarious. Oh. It's the best thing ever. It's beautiful. Uh-huh. <laughs> just just a mannequin on fire, just rolling along. <laughs> and then they go to the hospital like, did he say anything? No. No. He's and dead. And that's why I tend to assume that, that it was probably meant to imply, like, biting out his tongue. Mm-hmm. Just to extra sure. Symbolism. Well, I was unsure because TV Hannibal, it is his lip, and then and he sends it to Hannibal, who just eats the, eats him some raw lip. As you and do. Also he, very well, good. Just doesn't even cook it. Nope, just... <laughs> It's really good. Doesn't even stuff it down his boyfriend's throat. <laughs> no, that's what ears are for. <laughs> Chilton is here. Chilton is Chilton is here, but he is not. Chilton is here and it's weird because it's like so perfunctory that why are you even bothering to establish this character who has no significance since it's not a mega franchise yet? It feels weird. Right. He's... It feels like the scene in every superhero movie that's intended to be a franchise now where you have somebody pop into the scene just so someone can say their name and acknowledge that they're there because this will be important Mm -hmm. very much so he gives like one piece of exposition that could have easily been shuffled off somewhere else and then we move on but he but you do love a chilton i do i love specifically he's not unkillable in this presumably i mean he might be nobody tried to kill him so we don't know Exactly. Only Raul Julia Chilton is the true Chilton. No? No. Raul Esparza. <laughs> Thank you. That I mean, would be Raul very Julia different. If Raul Julia were unkillable, that would also be amazing. It would. That would be a better world. Alas. No, yeah. Raul Esparza, who is just playing this loathsome character that, that the production crew referred to as Kenny <laughs> after a certain point. <laughs> That's yeah, very good. Yeah, Aspars is not in this. He was probably twelve at the time, a baby. So we don't care about children. No, no. And then, so after he finishes setting a man on fire, Dollar Hyde <laughs> manages to suddenly plot find his next victim, who is this blind woman. Um, no, she's not his next victim because his next victim is the person whose uh, home movies he was watching. Right, but he meets. A blind woman who works in the processing lab of the photo place that he works at because Mm -hmm. she works in the dark room because she doesn't require accommodations in the dark room that sighted people need. But they make very clear that she was hired as an affirmative action thing. And Dollar Hyde proceeds to be a very mm, believable creep. 
where he offers her to get to give her a ride home and just steps on over her insistence that she, she's good thanks yeah um she's played by joan collins she's fine in this um if you've seen her in anything it's probably either face off great film or uh pleasantville she played the mom in pleasantville mm. yeah she played spider-man's mom spider-man and Elle woods her children wild i like pleasantville it's not a good movie but but it sure is but it sure was fake deep at the same time i was watching you know donnie darko that sounds right Unfortunately, she just cannot compete with Rutina Wesley based on sheer amount of time the character has on screen. Or even, um, I can't remember her name, but the actress who played her uh, in um, in Red Dragon was quite good, too. Mm. And yeah, she just, she can't compete. And also she's very, she's generally a good actress, but she's very, very bad at controlling her eye lines. It's weird because apparently she did a lot of work um, with, with, um, she she went to, like, a school for the blind and, like, did a lot of work there. I feel like she probably learned a lot of the compensation methods that blind people use, but I feel like she has 20-20 vision. Mm-hmm. Right. There's not that thing where your eyes refocus or don't focus, as the yeah. case may be. Like, I'm a person who has very poor vision. Mm-hmm. I am not anywhere near blind. But when I don't have my glasses on, there's no point in directing my gaze. Mm-hmm. which I think is not something that she has arrived at or achieved as a performative thing yet. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also could be a certain amount of the editing because they've clearly lined up the sight lines. Yeah, the shots are designed for, for sight lines. Mm-hmm. And she just conveys the effect of looking directly at whatever she's pointed at. And she is a pretty nothing character mostly she's they go home and have sex he initially wanted to speak to her because he wanted tips on how to record his horrifying murders in the dark which isn't upsetting at all but he said he wanted to photograph nocturnal animals and she was like i don't know um i know some stuff about it and then he was like by the way how about i show you a an animal and he took her to pet an anesthetized tiger at the zoo this all goes very quickly uh-huh. There's like, no sense within, of connection between them. Even within them. the alleged 28 days that's going on, this is all crammed into, like, one sequence. Mm-hmm. It's not played out parallel to the investigation, which makes it feel very rushed. Yeah, it's all kind of crammed in after the lounge stuff. It just sort of shove it in there. Yeah, it's an odd structure, because I guess they wanted to, to make it seem like his interaction with her was a universal good and he wasn't struggling through it which like and and again um wesley and armitage had a couple of hours relative you know to to develop out that subplot but i just think regina wesley's a really good actress who unfortunately is mostly known for getting cast as this really thankless role in true blood and deserves more credit i never watched true blood was she the one who got all of the um the militant lines Uh uh-huh ah Yeah, I hear that role was very needed and also extremely badly executed on the writing end. Uh Uh-huh. And it's so unfortunate because now people think of her as annoying and she is talented as shit. But, like, they have great chemistry in the show and just you really get why why the plot is there, what they're trying to convey thematically, how it's a parallel to Hannibal and Will's relationship. Yeah, and I feel like this one wants to lean so hard into this redemptive heterosexuality 
that it neglects the fact that there are better ways to do it structurally. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want him to do anything bad after he starts fucking her. So everything involving his interactions with her happens after the all the, the violent shit. Yeah. And then they cut the uh, the gotcha ending. Yeah, they cut the gotcha ending, which is hilarious as a choice. It, uh, I get it, because, you know, in the, so the film ends with a great big standoff. Um, Dollar Hyde freaks out and just decides she's cheating on him because somebody other than him gives her a ride home. Mm-hmm. Upsetting. Which, that happens in all versions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he kidnaps her, takes her back to his house, is a total which is, creep. Which is not a southern gothic mansion of horrors. Nope. It's just like a, a 60s style single level house. Yep. With, with a rather hilarious like Mars mural desert mural thing. thing. So he is stalking her through the house and then it's a race as the FBI go- goes in there. And Will Graham decides that he can be helpful in this situation. With, with the large monster man who is so strong. Well, it, they've already planted, they've planted the gun with the special bullets. So now it's time for payoff. <laughs> but you know what they haven't planted? The idea that Will has any kind of sufficient training or, or with a firearm in that he used recently. He doesn't even have guns. He just... Dashes in through the window like this is gonna help. Yeah. It's it's a nice shot. Yes. And then there's an awkward kitchen standoff for a minute. And then then other people shoot him. Yeah. Uh, Oh, no, Will gets his gun in. Yeah. And, like, shoots him a bunch of times, which is super impressive because these bullets are special and are supposed to have stopping power instantaneously. Mm Mm-hmm. Blood spreads out like wings on his... Uh, across the floor and it doesn't mean anything because they didn't put the dragon tattoo in. Yeah. And and then we cut away from the body and then we cut back to the body and the blood's gone. Choice. Which is great. And then the movie ends. Which, like, okay, I guess that's satisfying enough. Like, yeah. it built and then Will swooped in and saved the day and that's, like, sort of, I guess, exercised his demons or whatever. Right, because this will, you believe that this will can go back to his family. Right, and it, it he hasn't just caged up a bad guy this time, so. Mm-hmm. So it truly is so, so oppressed. He has killed this within himself. And it literally just ends with them looking out in the sunrise and on it's the just beach. Like, <laughs> just like, K. Shit's fine now, y'all. So, so if he's so chill with it, then I guess he can just keep doing this as his job indefinitely. Because what's the fucking problem? Mm, a little bit. A little bit. Like, I don't think you thought this through. (laughs) (laughs) But meanwhile, in other versions. Yeah. Including Red Dragon. Every other version. (laughs) Yeah. So Dollar Hyde didn't even fucking eat a painting here. Which, frankly, how dare. How dare you not (laughs) let me see the time-honored tradition of painting crunch. (laughs) But there's also this fake out where... They destroyed a masterpiece by not destroying a masterpiece. Exactly. <laughs> um, because the the whole reason that we have, um, that, that Reba is a blind character is so that we can do this fake out where where it seems like Dollar Hyde has killed himself and she goes and reports that to the cops. Right, like, the, like she gropes around in this burning house and feels a human body. That uh, is a man of roughly similar size to the guy she's fucked before. Right, with this whole thing where he had made 
a big deal about a key around his neck that he then put on the, the corpse that he had prepared. Right. Who Who is the guy that he thinks she was going to fuck. And it's honestly... Honestly, he was a less shitty person in that version because he concluded that she was going to fuck this guy. And rather than imprisoning and threatening to kill her, he just decides, fuck it, I'm going to go murder other people. You I know what? It I, wasn't meant to be. I wasn't supposed to have this relationship anyway. I guess I'm a dragon now. Bitch <laughs> like. Time to be dragon. And he goes and eats. Uh, before that, he eats a painting from, from the Library of Congress. In other versions, it's a whole thematic thing. thing. <laughs> and but this is this is why or it's a big deal. Whatever, I don't know that that he has Will's address because having faked his own death, he shows up at Will's house in every other version. Uh huh. And once again, the Hannibal version of it is very good and tense because the woman playing Molly in in that version is so likable with so little screen time, and I am in awe. You said that she and she and Dancy had worked together before, right? Why they were able to achieve such chemistry so fast? Uh huh. Yeah. Apparently. Also, there were dogs. So so many dogs. Uh, yeah. Her name is Nina Arianda, and she was very good. Well, I mean, Will doesn't have even one dog in this. It's true. Where is this garbage man's dog pack? I mean, that that is the first indication that Will is a terrible person is that he steals dogs. <laughs> That he doesn't follow the rules of society by stealing dogs. You're so mad about it. He didn't even check whether that dog had, like, escaped or been kidnapped. He just kidnapped the dog. No. He, he just concluded that he should have this dog and he took the dog. Like, yes, take the dog in and give them a bath, but, like, try to find their people. No, Winston is a special friend. I say this as someone who has found a cat. And tried to find their people. Now we still have that cat. Yes, we still have her. It's been 15 years. They're coming any day. No. And so I get why they cut the, the fake out because it, it feels sort of a little exhausting in film form to, to do the fake out. But it's fun. I guess. Like, I, I like that the TV version kept kept the he go, goes to the house, but Will's not there and she has to escape on her own and it's... Real good. Yeah, that's the other thing. Watching this now is wild because it's just a Byzantine set of layers of story. Uh-huh. It's just layer upon layer of ways it could have gone. Yeah, and all the things- just a map to nowhere. All the things that, that stacked on top of of, of it stylistically, thematically. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so much. Like, a, still a good watch, though. Yeah, no, I I like this one. Like, I'm glad that we decided to do this for the yeah. anniversary. It doesn't have a very bored Anthony Hopkins pacing around on a, a leash. Doing a, a whole extra extra sequence where we have to lift the letter without him noticing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Red Dragon film was trying, but it was so aware of its own sort of cultural significance at that point that it felt beholden to, to injecting as much Silence of the Lambsy Hannibal into it. As it could, and right. it suffered for it. Here's our 10th anniversary Silence of the Lambs follow-up. Right. Whereas, by contrast, um, Hannibal 
was already from the perspective, this shifted perspective, so it could just kind of do what it liked with it. Right. The franchise had already tanked its respectability with Hannibal Rising. <laughs> Which I saw in theaters. Oh. Oh, no. It, that's got some stuff going on. Oh, yeah. That is absolutely coming down the pipe at some point in the future. <laughs> and then I can talk about Hannibal the TV some more. <laughs> Um, we we did have to get a, a, a seven-day trial for stars to watch this movie, which, a sadness. Right. We need to watch anything else stars has immediately. Because. To make it worth it. Exactly. But I think we would recommend this one. Yeah. It's interesting on its own as, like, a very 80s thriller with a lot of vi- visual style and clothing style, too. Mm-hmm. Like, the clothes in this are kind of great. Yeah, if you're into film for time capsule value, this is a good one. Well, and Michael Mann's whole thing in the 80s was extremely cutting-edge clothing. Mm. It looks, I won't say beautiful, but there is there is a really intense observer value for that. I like looking at the clothes in this. And the colors and the synth soundtrack. Like, there's a lot of gloss on it that's fun to like. And it's... Just also really interesting to see these stories that everybody sort of peripherally knows about Hannibal Lecter, but it's interesting to see a Thomas Harris story before Hannibal Lecter was Hannibal Lecter, mm-hmm. where he's just that creepy guy. Yeah, this it is this very odd snapshot of an era in so many ways. I'm like, that's cool to see. Yay for that. Yeah, I liked it. Yay. A solid thumbs up. For, I mean, that's, that's what we, sometimes we like things. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> I feel like we've we've been talking a lot more lately about things we like. And I think that's good. Yeah. The long, dark night of Doug Walker is over. <laughs> Worst person you know has a point. Heartbreaking. Because Doug Walker <laughs> managed to make one good observation about... In his entire life. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. That's a better end to that <laughs> sentence. Don't Don't watch Doug Walker's videos, but like... He did manage one good observation in, in comparing Peterson to Norton's performance in that because Dancy wasn't wasn't yet. Yeah, yeah, which is wild to think about. That uh but he described Peterson's take on, on Will as, you know, a, a good a good guy who faces who faces monsters and um whereas Norton's take on the character is more a monster who is trying to be a good man. And Dancy's performance is obviously much more leaning to the latter. Right. Which I think it makes for a better story, but not as contained of an arc as you'd want for a one-shot film. Right. Which this is. Where it, it, it is just a whole different feeling. Still yeah. good. Though. Yeah. And it, even as much as I dunked on Peterson, there are some scenes where he's quite good. I just find it frustrating that he doesn't really lean into the particulars of the character. Mm-hmm. He's as much playing just a, a cop, a cop, not Will Graham, who isn't even as well known as, as Clarice Starling. But yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for our third. Is this our third anniversary? I think so. Hooray! Yeah, third anniversary. So, if you liked this episode you can find more of our stuff on soundcloud by looking up trash and treasures we're also on apple podcast uh stitcher if we're not on any place that you'd like to find us let us know we'll do what we can you can also find us on uh, email us uh at trash and treasures underscore pod at outlook.com find us on social media on tumblr at trash and treasures pod or on twitter at trash pod 
wherein if you say hi, we'll give you a shout out on the show. Uh, this time, wanted to say a thank you to at List Sexual, who made a very sweet recommendation of the podcast, and like all of our hearts melted collectively. And we also have a really exciting announcement to cap up our third anniversary, we have finally launched a Patreon. You might have noticed uh, in your feed that we have a shiny new image. Yeah, and I'm kind of sad that, again, Sean is unable to be here because we commissioned the icon from somebody that he's been following for years and years and years. And I know he's really excited that we got some of her art. Yeah, Allison Shabbat. Yeah, yeah, he's been a huge fan of uh, Allison's comic, Dead Winter, for ages. If you uh, look in the show notes, we'll have uh, a link to her website if you want to check out some of her other stuff. But we were just looking for something that, um, I don't know, we just wanted to update our look. And, you know, the reason behind a Patreon for the Patreon is just because we love doing this. Um, we love putting it out for you. And, you know, for for... For free, it'll continue to be free. But there are, you know, hosting costs and all that stuff. Uh, so this is just to help us kind of with with those kinds of things. There are tiers where we're going to have, you know, backer exclusive content where we talk about fun stuff like uh, Dorothy explaining to me weird fandom shit. <laughs> yeah, among other stuff. Among um, others. Yeah, um, we talked about maybe making the Smallville uh, podcast gated behind there, but that seemed unfair because we'd already, you know, talked about it with y'all. Backers can get access to my cocktail recipes. And you'll also... Club. Mm-hmm. And you'll also get the episodes a little bit early before everybody else. So that's very exciting. And Dorothy, what is that address? So that is at patreon.com slash trash and treasures. Yay, it's exciting. Yeah, we actually nabbed that one. Good for us. <laughs> but yeah, we, we obviously don't expect you uh, to give us money, but if you decided to, that'd be nice. You know, we're a bunch of academics and critics and just general nerds. We do this because we enjoy it. Yeah, so it's, there'll still be, you know, bi-weekly episodes like normal. We'll try to get out a couple more Smallville episodes just as bonuses when we can, not gated. Uh, we just thought this would be honestly a bit of a help, and we will do our level best to make it worth your while to the folks who are kind enough to donate. Uh, what are we doing next time? Well, we're about to roll on into Halloween. Yay, spookies! And um, this is another thing that uh, the Patreon will help us to finance in future, is guests. Yes, because we... Uh, like to respect our guests' time. You know, they're sweet enough to take the time to watch a movie and take a couple hours to record with us, so we like to toss them at least a few dollars to thank them for their time, which leads into the fact that we will have a very special guest to discuss our next film, which is The Howling. And we're going to have uh, Jordane Searles on. Yay! You may know her from uh, Bad Romance, the rom-com pod. Which is good stuff, and you should listen to it if you haven't. Look forward to that, and until next time, take care of yourselves. See y'all! <laughs>